Oh, it's so good to hear your voices this morning singing praise to our Creator. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And for those of you, if, if you don't have a Bible in your hands, you'd like to have a print Bible, we've got some free Bibles over to your right. We just got a new uh, set and some new stock. So we want to make sure that if you would like a Bible and you don't have one, you can get up right now if you want. Go and grab it. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20. Uh, verse 1 here this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here at Fairfax Bible Church. Looks like we've got some guests here today, some folks that are ready to to see their friends and loved ones uh, take that plunge to say, I have decided to follow Jesus uh, through public declaration of faith in Him through baptism. And we are thrilled about that today, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But right now, we are going to take a look at Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Uh, follow along as I read aloud, and I, I pray this before I read Scripture every time. Psalm 119, 18, Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Amen? Let's read together. <clears throat> follow along. Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says this, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had, go- when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Segundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were sailing, uh, uh, were waiting for us, excuse me, at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. <clears throat> on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Um, How many of you would love to make life easier? I would. I'd love to have something like this that you're seeing behind me right now, an easy button. I found this from an article from the website called The Verge. It says this, as buttons go, there are a few as well known as the Staples Easy Button, a bright Staples red button that was featured in a series of ad campaigns beginning in 2005. Now, the ads were so popular that Staples ended up actually selling real replica versions of the Easy Button shortly after they debuted. Maybe you've got one on your desk. I don't know. Since, though, it's sold millions of these desk toys. Now, the fictitious easy buttons featured in the commercials possess magical qualities that allow the user to sorcerously solve their usually office supply-related issues with the press of a button. But the sad irony, of course, is that the real-life version of the product is significantly more disappointing. Pressing it doesn't summon a rain of printer ink or raise the great wall to defend against an invading army. No, instead it just plays a recording of the company's 
that was easy tagline, right? When you press down on the satisfyingly clicky button. The easy button just imagines a world in which our buttons have been elevated to an even higher plane, one where things that, that buttons can do on the issues they can, they can alleviate aren't bounded by the petty things like electricity and programming and the laws of physics, one where no problem is too big or complicated that it can't be solved with a single push of a button. How many of you would love to have? I mean, think about one issue to this morning. I'm just going to give you permission. Whatever issue you want to think of, you say, I wish I had an easy button for that. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's paying bills or, or maybe you've left some dirty dishes in the sink in the kitchen on your way out after breakfast this morning. Wish I could just push that easy button and bam, it's done. Laundry, right? The easy part, I mean, with washers and dryers today, it's easy to throw it in the washer and then put it in the dryer. But then what do you got to do after that? You got to fold them all and put them all away. I wish there was an easy button for that. My wife and my mother are looking at me like, why? You don't do that hardly anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'll hear it later. Easy buttons, right? Uh, you probably think, but that, that's the simple everyday stuff, right? What about the more complicated stuff of life? The griefs, the heartaches, those seasons of, of difficulty and challenges and obstacles. You wish, I wish there was just an easy button that could fast me forward through the complicated stuff, through the tediousness of life. But you know what? We think about all these different everyday things, but think about this as for those that are followers of Jesus, you know, and you think to yourself, well, maybe following Jesus is just like hitting the easy button. Just be a little bit less complicated. My life will feel just a little less tedious Maybe this offer of the gospel, the good news to come and follow Jesus, maybe it's just an easy button for all of our lives, right? Has anybody in here that's been following Jesus for any amount of time, would you categorize following Jesus as pressing the easy button? I don't think so. And we see Paul here on this, this journey. I mean, it's action-packed with just itineraries and things going on. And you feel like, boy, this is complicated. This can get tedious as we saw Eutychus sitting and listening to a long message from Paul. It's not easy. I mean, consider the, the call to follow Jesus. He says, obey my commands. He told his disciples in the Gospels, he said, deny yourselves. Take up your own cross. Follow me. There's one portion in Luke chapter 12, he actually says, sell what you have and give to the poor. That doesn't sound easy. He said, seek first my kingdom and, and the righteousness of God and all the things that you need will be added to you. That's not an easy button, friends. How about this one? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. You. He said, love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, child, spouse. The call to follow Jesus, friends, is anything but an easy button, right? But yet those that have known Jesus and walked it with him for a while, they may be the first to admit, oh, following Jesus is no easy button, but following Jesus is worth it. This is the life Paul was living, and we see this in this little passage here this morning. He was in the midst of an extremely challenging time. He's traveling all over the place. I'm sure he's tired. In fact, as we read as he's at this church of Troas, he just has a little bit of time, and he's trying to maximize it because he's going to go on to the next city and visit more believers, more churches, and minister to them. 
And I'm sure there were moments that he felt scared. In fact, we're going to see some of those verses this morning where he confesses fear and anxiety. And Paul and the people that he was leading, the church, they needed courage. They needed courage to follow Jesus. And God gives them a moment where they see through all the complication, through all the tediousness, I give you something that can give you courage. And this is our big idea this morning. Courage for Christians. Courage for followers of Jesus comes from remembering that God raises the dead. Courage for Christians comes from remembering that God raises the dead. Through all the complications, Christians, we don't got easy buttons, okay? We need courage through the complications. We need courage through the tediousness of life. Where does that courage come from? It comes from remembering that God is powerful and he gives us hope. And that hope is that he raises the dead. We're going to see that in three, three, three movements in this story here today. First of all, we're just going to settle in it for a moment and just confess willingly to one another there are no easy buttons. First of all, living for Jesus can feel complicated. Living for Jesus can feel complicated. Secondly, living for Jesus may not just be complicated, it also can feel very tedious. I mean, following Jesus happens in the mundane, every stuff of life. But the good news that we see from this passage this morning is that God raises the dead. Living for Jesus can be complicated, it can be tedious, but God raises the dead. Let's take a look at the first one together. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, I mean, we just see this complicated itinerary. It is a complicated, congested, full itinerary. Paul is traveling all over the place. I got a couple of maps here for you. Some of you may not appreciate this at all, uh, but for you geography nerds, uh, you're going to love this, right? That traces Paul's first and second missionary journeys. He was sent out from Antioch of Syria, and he was sent out, and he and Barnabas, they went by boat, and they went to Cyprus, and they went throughout uh, Asia Minor, and they were traveling. And if, as you've been seeing, if you've been following with us in the book of Acts in our series, we've been seeing that it's been anything but an easy button for Paul, right? There were moments that he was rejected, those moments that he and his friends were reviled. The church had to get out of the synagogue and they had to start forming these enclaves inside homes. There's one place Paul was even nearly stoned to death, but God saved him and protected him from death. And he gets up and he walks out and he goes to the next town. I mean, this stuff is hard. It's a complicated itinerary. Those are the first two journeys. You may be wondering, well, where are we at in the story? I'll take you to the next slide there. We're on Paul's third missionary journey. He left and he spent two years in Ephesus. We just saw him leave Ephesus, okay? And I actually bought my fancy little pointer here today. Let's see if this, how this works. Is this going to work? Uh-oh, I don't know if it's going to work. It may not work. It doesn't matter. But you're going to see up there, Paul has been in Ephesus, right? And he's going up and he goes through Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and he comes down through Athens and another part of Greece. Corinth was a wicked city. It was so hard for him. Now he's on his way back. He wanted to go from here to here, but there were some guys waiting here that were going to kill him, so he had to go back up north, and he comes down. I don't know if you can see it right there. Do you see Troas right there? That's where Paul is this morning as we've been reading this. He's in Troas. I just want you to see this map. It's not impressive. I'm not here to have you memorize this. I want you to see that this is complicated stuff. Have any of you ever traveled extensively, traveling throughout Europe or Africa or Asia? I mean, we're talking about plane flights and connections and layovers and and catching trains and then getting in Uber rides and and buses and all these different things. It can get extremely complicated, keeping all those passes and tickets and, and schedules all together. Now think about doing all of that and only having the opportunity of going by foot 
or by boat. Talk about complicated. Talk about long. This was Paul's journey. He's been on the road for many, many days. Not only does he have a complicated itinerary of traveling all, of, all, of the, uh, all over this uh, Roman world, but he also had an important mission. You see, Paul was on a mission as he was getting ready to go back to Jerusalem that he was on a campaign, a fundraising campaign for the saints and the church that was hurting in Jerusalem, the church that was under persecution in, in Jerusalem. We see it in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's writing to churches to let them know, hey, if you really feel that you're one and the same, you Gentile, you non-Jewish believers, if you love your Jewish brothers and sisters, I want to urge you, start a collection together on the first day of the week. Come together and raise support so that you could support these churches in Jerusalem. And that's what Paul was doing. He was going, and that's why he's got a whole list of representatives with him. Representatives from these churches that he's helped planted to say, we are coming together to tell you believers and friends in Jerusalem, we love you. This is not easy. There's no easy button for this. You get, a, you get in a boat, and you don't know if it's going to take you exactly where you want to go. You're reliant upon the wind. You have to connect, uh, find connecting ships. A lot of times you had to travel by foot. This was complicated. There was no easy button for this. You see, following Jesus for Paul was already complicated enough as it was. Life is complicated enough as it is before coming, off, before coming a follower of Jesus. But when we come to follow Jesus, we begin to align our priorities with the agenda of Jesus. And this can make our lives feel even more complicated than what we had before. Friends, It's not pressing the easy button. Sometimes following Jesus, we feel like this is pressing the complicated button. But Jesus is worth it. Listen to what Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 29. He's just confessing his his own anguish, okay? He's just telling the Corinthians, you don't know, I've been through a lot. And in fact, I think he's referring back to the story that we saw last week in Ephesus. The whole town, the whole city was under a riot and they wanted, to, they wanted to persecute and kill the Christians. But he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, five times I'd received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day and I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, but danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I was in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And listen to this, to add to all the complications, it's there on the, on the screen for you. And apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak? <laughs> and I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? And I'm not indignant about it. This is Paul saying, hey, I'm following Jesus. And it feels really complicated. It feels really complicated. But friends, I I don't think Paul would tell you, you know what, I don't know that it's worth it. In fact, he says, I count all the former comforts I used to have in Philippians 3, all the privileges that I had. He says, I count them as rubbish compared to this, knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's an adventure worth going on. It's a journey worth taking. I love J.R. Tolkien. I quote, 
the, the Lord of the Rings often here, but I love, he talks about Frodo Baggins and Bilbo Baggins and their family, right, in the introduction. He says, the Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill, this quaint little countryside town, right, for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they had never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. They liked the easy button, right? You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. But as you know the story, that's not Bilbo's story. That's not Frodo's story. They leave the, the quaintness of the Shire and they go out on this journey. And it, and it nearly kills them. It nearly rips them apart. But I love there in, in the story that Bilbo, after he's gone on his journey of the Hobbit, right? And he says, I'm ready for an adventure. He realizes that living this simple, easy life is not all there is. He's longing for adventure. I think Tolkien is teaching us a lesson here that a life worth living is not a life that is simply sitting by the easy button. It's a life that sometimes can feel complicated and hard with obstacles. Friend, you're not made to live this life in this broken world at ease and at comfort. God wants to give you a comfort that goes beyond just this life, that you get up, you make as as much money and comfort as you can, and then you retire and then you die. He says, oh no, that'll lead you to eternal damnation, and that'll lead you to eternal discomfort, but I can give you a comfort that lasts if you would follow me in this life. A commitment to Jesus doesn't exempt one from complication, but it gives meaning to our complication. It gives meaning to the complexities of life. It gives meaning to all the obstacles and all the challenges and and all of the complicated stuff that goes along with following him. But I think Paul felt it on this journey. He felt it. Living for Jesus can feel complicated. I want to ask you today, Think about the complications you may be feeling directly as a result of your commitment to follow Jesus. Oh, I want to encourage you. Remember that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Well, living for Jesus can feel complicated, but living for Jesus can also feel tedious. It wasn't just true of Paul, but we see this young man here today uh, from this passage. So they're gathered there on the first day of the week. We see in verses 7 through 9, and they're breaking bread, which is likely a, an allusion to the, the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the first times we see that, that it seems that they honor the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That's why we meet on Sundays as believers, to remember Christ's resurrection. They broke bread, which is what we call the Lord's Supper, the taking of communion. They're there, and Paul, he doesn't have a lot of time. He's moving on real soon. He's like, this is the last night with you, so let's make the most of it. And they pulled an all-nighter. Paul had just one more day, and he wanted to make the most of it. And guess what he did? He conversed with them. And he talked. And then he talked. And then he talked some more. And he talked, and he talked, and he talked. And this poor young man, Eutychus, I mean, who could blame him, right? Here he is, he's making the effort. Versus, uh, he's likely 8 to 14 years old. He, he probably had worked all day doing chores for his family and community, but he wanted to be there to hear the Apostle Paul. He wanted to hear this message that he wanted to share, and he wanted to hear the stories of what God was doing and what Jesus was doing throughout the Roman world. He wanted to hear it. 
But yet this warm and inviting atmosphere on the third floor of this probably wealthy home and and they're there and there's the oil lamps and perhaps there's this aroma and this residue that's in the air and he's breathing it in and it's almost like perhaps it became almost hypnotic to him, right? And it turns deadly. Oil lamps, aroma, warmth, uh, it became deadly. Now, I got to address the elephant in the room. Us preachers, we can preach a long time sometimes. In fact, I've got a book. Uh, it's called Saving Eutychus, right? Saving Eutychus. I thought that's a, yeah, it's an hilarious, uh, a hilarious title, right? I said, I got to get that book because I don't want anybody sleeping when I'm trying to preach. And I certainly, certainly don't want anybody to die while I'm preaching, right? Uh, but you know what? Sometimes, let's just call it what it is. Like this preaching, this preaching task, Paul said, us preachers, we're the fools of the earth. We're not the most entertaining people. If you came here today looking for the most clever TED Talk, I know I am not it. If you came here today looking for some profound technique of wisdom, you're looking in the wrong place. Paul says this about Christians and followers of Jesus. He says, we go and we preach Christ crucified. It feels like weakness to the Jews and it feels like stupidity and foolish to the Gentiles. But to those who hear, it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. And so friends, I I understand it. Listening to preaching can feel tedious. And it was tedious for Eutychus. We don't intend on putting you to sleep. We don't want any of you to die. But we want to communicate to you the truths that can set you free and give you life. That's not just true of preaching. It can be true of a lot of the habits that you and I exhibit and that we try to follow in the everyday stuff of life. Think about your habits, what we call spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer. You know, actually, I just, I just started another Bible reading plan, right? I, praise be to God, I got through the Bible in, in one year last year, and I started all over again. It was, I, wanted to, I, I felt like somebody should throw me a party, right, on December 31st. Bam, you did it! But then guess what it was? January 1st, and I started all back over again, right? Like, wait a minute, I'm doing this all over again? Yeah, I'm doing it all over again, right? And it could feel tedious at times, especially if you get up early. Some of you have early, early shifts at your jobs. And I hear you in in our small groups, and it's just that challenge, right? Oh, man, just pray for me that Lord would give me endurance, that even though this time of year I feel like I'm getting up at oh dark 30, but I, I would get up and I would go through sometimes that feeling of tediousness to read my Bible to read my Bible, to, to pray then. And I often I can't pray until I've at least had my third cup of coffee, right? It can feel really tedious. Coming together in community, right? Last week we had a cold, snowy day. Many of you showed up. Praise be to God. That's the power of God in you. Giving, giving, being generous, it feels tedious at times. Evangelizing, when sharing the good news of the gospel, when it feels like no one's listening, listening it can all feel so tedious In fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to the tediousness of life. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the writer, he says, vanity of vanities, all life feels like vanity. And he goes on and he describes all kinds of this tedious vanity of the everyday stuff of life. The sun rises and it sets. Seasons come and go. People are born and they die. We grow crops and then we have to grow them all over again. We do the dishes and then the sink is full again. We fold laundry and then we have a full hamper again. We get to payday and then we have little to show for it when the bills that need to get paid and especially our mortgages in Northern Virginia. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. We feel it. We feel it. We feel it. 
For you moms and dads with little ones, you change that diaper and it feels like just the following minute you got to change it again, right? Fact, amen. I got an amen, right? Fact, factual. It's that everyday stuff of life. And Eutychus, he's, he's just there, but in this moment, in this moment, he falls asleep and he dies. I mean, I, I, when I read this, I thought, God, what, why? I mean, he's doing, this young man is doing what he should be doing. We can't blame him for falling asleep, right? Maybe Paul should have given everybody like just a break for a second, right? My, my mentor and pastor, Phil Howard in California, uh, he quotes Charles, uh, Charles Swindoll, if you've heard of Chuck Swindoll. He's, he's a pastor. Uh, he's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a while. And this quote that I, I've taken secondhand, but it says this, the hardest thing about the Christian life is that it's so daily. The hardest thing about the Christian life is that it's so daily. I mean, those moments where I feel like, okay, I got to like muster up this courage. This is a big challenge in front of me. I almost find that easier because it's like, all right, something's different. Like it's time to like say, okay, it's time to stand up for Jesus. But then it's like, but oh man, it's cold and wet outside and I don't even feel like getting out of this bed, but I think I ought to go read my Bible. Sometimes that's the hard stuff. Maybe that's true of you here today. The hardest thing about the Christian life, if you're a follower of Jesus today, is that it's so daily. It can all feel so tedious, aligning our times, our habits, our disciplines with the agenda of Jesus adds even more dailies to the ever-growing list of all the daily stuff of life. But friends, there's hope. Jesus gives meaning and purpose to the dailies. For you, for you moms out there, I, you know what? Man, I, I, I only know because I saw my wife living in the dailies of being a mom. Jesus gives purpose to the dailies. That bottle that gets washed, that diaper that gets changed, that laundry that has to get folded again. And I know, I hope many of you men are involved in that stuff too, right? And I'm convicting myself now. Get involved, Matthew, right? But the dailies can feel so tedious. The dailies of the Christian life and its habits, when you add those on top of all this other stuff, can feel so tedious. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, if you put these things, this healthy doctrine before the brothers and sisters, before the, the spiritual family, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Don't get distracted, Timothy. He writes this, rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while God, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Many of you have gym uh, subscriptions and, and you're there and, and you, you're working out and jogging and doing all this stuff all the time. Keep it up. It's wonderful. And you know what? Invite me to do it because I need to do it more, okay? Uh, but you know what? No matter how much you train physically, nothing compare can compare with training for godliness. Training for godliness. Eutychus, go back up to that third story window. Go, no, not the window, maybe sit in the corner. But go, Eutychus, and go and listen to that word again. Oh, friend, you know what? Maybe, maybe one of us preachers laid an egg last week or the week before. Come back anticipating. I gotta hear God's word again. You know, yes, yeah, last yesterday I was, I was reading the book of Leviticus. And oh, man, it's so hard. There's so much blood. Come back and read again. Read again. Train yourselves for the purpose of, 
of godliness. Well, how are we to train? Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, listen to the comparison. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I've got a nephew right now. He's in basic training for the army. He's learning what it means to suffer as a good soldier. Some of you have been through that process yourselves. You know what this is like as Paul writes this. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then he makes another comparison. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. If you cheat, you get disqualified. And I love this one. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farmers, they get up early. They work hard. They work daily. The work of a farm never ends. Friends, don't give up doing the tedious, everyday stuff of life. Jesus gives meaning and he gives purpose to it. Jesus is worth it. Poor Eutychus, he fought and he failed to stay awake. Poor young man, he's not faulted at all. But guess what? He was there. He was there. It was worth it to him. Your Christian life will likely feel a lot more like Eutychus fighting to stay awake in that upper room or Peter or James and John fighting to stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus than it is the thrill of the tongues of fire coming down on Pentecost. Oh, I wish that my life looked more like Pentecost than it did like Eutychus falling out. I mean, man, geez, think about this. Peter Peter was preaching and all thousands of people came to know Jesus. And here Paul is preaching at night and somebody dies because of his preaching. I'd rather preaching look a whole lot more like Pentecost than it did for Eutychus and Troas. But guess what, friends? Whether it looks tedious or complicated, it's always worth it. Don't tap that easy button. Don't tap that snooze alarm and just roll over. Oh, friends, it's tedious, it's hard, but Jesus is worth it. But why is he worth it? Why is he worth it? This brings us to the whole culmination of this story. Living for Jesus can feel complicated. Living for Jesus can feel tedious. But friend, the reason we're here today, right now, is because God raises the dead. I'm going to say it again. Our courage Following Jesus comes from this truth. And if you take away this truth, you may say, oh, well, there's a lot of other truths that are good as well. It's true. But I'm leaving this stuff if this isn't true. God raises the dead. God raises the dead. I mean, Paul picked up the boy. There was no doubt. It lifted him up. He fell to the ground. He was dead. He didn't just get knocked out for a minute. No, no, no. Luke is making it explicitly clear. The boy Eutychus was dead. And so Paul went downstairs to the bottom floor. And I'm sure the, 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 the anxiety and the fear. And, and, and who knows? His parents may be there just weeping and crying and shouting, my boy, what happened to my boy? Paul, Paul I told you, you should have given us a break, right? But Paul goes down there. What does Paul do? He lays over him and he wraps his arms around him. This is a picture of the power of the prophets Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament laying over someone who's dead. And guess what God did? God raised the dead. The power of God was present even in this tedious and complicated itinerary, this tedious message that was going on and on and on and on. And people felt exhausted and the boy dies. But the power of God was in the midst of the complicated. The power of God to raise the dead was in the midst of the tedious in the tedious, God demonstrated his power. Death leads 
to life in the story. Sorrow gives way to joy. The mundane becomes a miracle. Preaching is infused with power. The gathering becomes a platform for the greatness of God to be put on display. And I love what it says in verses 1, Paul was encouraging. In verse 2, Paul is encouraging. And at the end of this passage, in verse 12, it says, they took the youth, this church at Troas, they took Eutychus away alive and they were not a little comforted. They were comforted. Wow, Paul, you're so busy. Paul, this this all night sermon, it, it put this boy to sleep and he died. But you know what? In the midst of all the complication and in the midst of all the tediousness, it wasn't comfortable that we went over and pushed an easy button. No, but we got to see the demonstration of God's power to raise the dead on display. The gospel goodbye here that that Paul is giving to this church of Troas is, I'm sure the Troas church, I don't know if they call them Troasians, I don't know what they call them. That sounds like a faraway planet or something out of Star Trek. But this church at Troas, I'm sure they raise a lot of questions about the future of the church. Paul, you're going away. Who's going to lead? What about the persecution that we're hearing about in some of these other places? Where's the authority going to come from for, for the future? The wisdom, where are we going to get this wisdom? You're getting revelation directly from God. How are we going to be faithful in the midst of such hard times? And I'm sure this message that Paul's given back and forth, questions are being raised. And in the midst of all of that, right in the middle of this this long, long overnight sermon, God gives a booster shot right into the arms of the Troasian Christians, right? Gave them courage and comfort. Where did that courage and comfort come from? It came from a demonstration of God's power as he raised Eutychus from the dead. That's where courage comes from, friends. Courage comes from remembering that God raises the dead. That's where the courage comes for your life. That's the courage where it comes from my life. There are many days, friends, I'll just tell you, I feel like a weak, lousy pastor. And I wonder, Lord, where can the courage come from? Oh, Matthew, it's not because you preached a good sermon such and such a days. It's not because you didn't actually kill anybody in your sermon last week. Where's the, where, where's the courage coming from? Friend, I, I get up here and there's days that I feel like my knees are knocking, but I get up here because God raises the dead. You, you go out there and you have conversations with your friends and your loved ones and, and you live going upstream like we saw last week, going upstream in a world that's going downstream. The, the world wants to hit the easy button all the time. Where does the courage come from to swim upstream? It comes from remembering that God raises the dead for your life, for my life, for your ministry, for my ministry, for our church, and for its work, for our programs, for our young people. You know what? We're, we're against it. Our young people, I mean, they've got so many pressures, so many challenges, so many lies that are being spread to them all the time through social media and through, you know, friends that sometimes may even mean well, but they're passing on the, the ideologies of this world. Where is there any hope that we're going to have some young people that aren't going to walk away from the church and say, to heck with all that stuff. Why? It comes from the fact that God raises the dead. God raises the dead and he could give hope to our young people. Young person, student, if you're here today and you feel like, I don't think I've got any courage to live for Jesus on my campus. Friend, remember, as you walk around, student, you know the God who raises the dead. 
There's no athlete. There's no rapper. There's no social media influencer that can do that for you. God raises the dead and he could give you courage to swim upstream. You may think about your life. What am I going to do with my life? Where, where am I going to live? Whom am I, going, am, am I going to marry? You may be already thinking about lunch today. What am I going to eat today? How am I going to earn money? How am I going to be able to retire? We were created for so much more, so much more. And you know it and I know it. It's like Belle and Beauty and the Beast. There must be more than this provincial life, right? There is. Why? Because God raises the dead. The life of a follower of Jesus may look similar in many ways to every other person, right? We, we have to wade through the complicated and tedious stuff too. It may, your life, my life, may look just like the life of a non-follower of Jesus. We get up, we shower, we get dressed, we brush our teeth, we grab our coffee, sit in traffic, we go to school or work, we attend meetings, we answer text messages, we come home, we prepare dinner. I'm getting exhausted, just listen to all this stuff. We've got to feed our pets, if we have one. Uh, Some of us take our kids to practice and we take out the garbage. We feel the same pains, we pay the same taxes and bills. We feel heartaches when our loved ones pass or our friends pass and our family disappoints us. We have complicated and tedious parts of our lives, but we've got something better than an easy button. We have someone. We got a someone, a savior who gives meaning to all of it. Jesus died and he is alive. Not Jesus is dead. Jesus died and he is alive. And we, those who have joined ourselves to him, we've died and we now live with him. And even if our bodies get placed in an urn or get buried in the ground, friend, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. We will be raised with Jesus forever. Forever, forever. Eutychus was a demonstration. There's power right here in the midst of all the complication, in the midst of all the tediousness. Jesus graciously reminded Paul and the church in Troas something we need to hear today. No matter what happens, friend, you will be raised. You have hope. You have life. There is power working right alongside all of the complicated stuff, all the tedious rhythms of your life. The power of Jesus is present in the everyday stuff of your life. So take courage. Take courage. Really briefly, three ways. Three ways. How does God raising the dead give us courage? How does God raising the dead give us courage? If you've got a pen and pad or your smartphone, just write them down, and I want you to think about it, talk it over lunch later, all right? How does God raising the dead give us courage? First of all, we learn to rely on God and not ourselves. We learn to rely on God and not ourselves. That gives us courage. Because if I'm relying on me, I feel afraid. If I'm relying on God, that gives me courage. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, he's rehearsing all the stuff he's been through to help give courage to the, the believers in Corinth. He says this, 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we felt that, he's talking about he and his companions, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's complicated, right? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So I may go into this city and they may want to kill me. How in the world can I continue on in courage? Well, I'm not relying upon myself. I'm relying upon God who raises the dead. Friend, how can God raising the dead give you courage today? Because you learn to rely on yourself. I mean, rely on God and not yourself. 
Oh, you are a competent, educated people. But guess what? If you're relying upon yourself, you're not going to have any courage. Because put all the degrees on the wall, all the accolades, all the promotion. Go ahead and look at your bank account. If it's full of money, wonderful. Guess what? You're going to be full of fear if you're relying upon yourself because it all could be taken away in a moment. But those who are followers of Jesus can have hope and have courage because we learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Secondly, how does God raising the dead give us courage? Secondly, we have hope in the midst of our grief. We have hope in the midst of our grief. I'll read this for you briefly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 says this, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That was a euphemism for those who had died in the Lord, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. Right? He says you grieve, but I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. And why? Here's why. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Excuse me. For the Lord himself will descend from, a hev- from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And here it is. This is what gives us hope in the midst of our grief. And the dead in Christ will rise first will rise, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And guess what you're supposed to do with this truth, this truth that Paul founded his life on? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what we should be doing in our small groups. Oh man, I, you know, I'm sure, brother, sister, I, I feel life is just so complicated. I feel life is just so tedious. And you know what? I'm grieving the loss of a loved one. Oh man, let me grieve with you. But let's grieve like someone who has hope. Why? Because God raises the dead. We have hope in the midst of our grief. That gives us courage. Third way, how does God raising the dead give us courage? Thirdly, everything we do in this life has meaning and purpose. Everything we do has meaning and purpose. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. He says, when the perishable, that which dies and rots, puts on imperishable, and the mortal, this body, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling the Corinthians, remember, God raises the dead. What are you going to do about it? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friend, you may feel like I got so much tediousness, so many complications. It feels like it's worthless and I'm wore out. Don't give up because God raises the dead and he gives meaning and purpose to even the most mundane stuff of your life. That's where courage comes from. Courage for Christians comes from remembering that God raises the dead. What does that mean for Monday at Fairfax Bible Church? What does this mean for Monday? It's a question we want to try and ask as often as we can. We don't just want to come and hear a message on Sunday. We want to know what does this mean when I go back out into that mundane world tomorrow? What does this mean for Monday? And I want to invite some friends up. The worship team, you could come up. 
We've got four people that are getting baptized today. I want to invite them to come on up. They're going to share their story with you in just a, a few moments. What does this mean for Monday? Maybe you need to take courage today. In fact, I think all of us need to take courage today. Never met an over-encouraged Christian. Never in my life. And I'm not one either. We need courage today. I want to ask you, have you been relying upon yourself rather than the power of God? Oh, hope in God who raises the dead. Oh, friend, there's no hope in relying upon your wealth, your possessions, your accomplishments. Remember, God raises the dead. Rely on him. Have you been grieving and feel like there's no hope? Maybe you've been in a long season of grief. That doesn't mean that it's just going to be, you know, you can just press some easy button when you read your Bible and the grief just kind of melts away. No, it's a long, long journey with Jesus. In the midst of your grief, remember there's hope. God raises the dead. He will raise your body to life someday. I look out here and I see a lot of young faces and there are a few faces that are a little bit older here and you may feel like my body's feeling weak. It's feeling hurt. I, I go to the doctor all the time. I get discouraged. Friend, take courage today because God raises the dead. Maybe you've been getting caught up in the mundane, everyday stuff of life. Maybe it's you feel like ministry is just drying up. Maybe it's just the everyday stuff of changing diapers and doing laundry. Don't forget, all that you do, none of it is done in vain. Be steadfast and be immovable. Why? Because God raises the dead.